Hi, and welcome to Talking Startups at NYU. I'm your host, Giovanni Fume. Today, my guest is Michael Leibowitz, the founder and CEO of the award-winning agency Big Spaceship, an agency whose name you've definitely heard of if you're at all familiar with the advertisement industry. If you're not, for some context, Big Spaceship is an agency that is 18 years old, which has done work for companies like YouTube, Chobani, Converse, Samsung, and BMW. Michael guest lectures at NYU Stern about the Harvard Business School case that was written about his agency. In this conversation, we discuss how profoundly digital technology has altered the advertisement landscape and how his agency has evolved to cope with those changes. It is a great snapshot into the two decades he has put into this company and how it has transformed him as a person. If you like this episode, please follow us on SoundCloud or in the iTunes podcast app. Just look up Talking Startups at NYU. Also, you can follow us on social media through the NYU Entrepreneurial Institute's Facebook page, Twitter page, and LinkedIn. Hi, Michael. Thank you for coming on the show. Hi, thanks for having me. No problem. I guess I'd like to start with what Big Spaceship is. Just to contextualize this, in another podcast, you defined it as, I guess, we're an ad agency. What did you mean by that? Because <laughs> I'm never really quite sure. We're a funny animal uh, in, our, in our business. We are equal parts uh, design and user experience company, uh, marketing, strategic communications, business transformation, advertising, we really sit where brands and organizations meet people mm. and we try to be as fluent as possible in all the different ways that somebody might uh, might be reached. It's quite interesting because especially for people who may not have been following how much the advertisement industry has been changing over the last few years, it may be surprising that an ad agency no longer can really survive by offering those discrete services that it used to in like a Mad Men-ish era, because the way you described it kind of sounds like it's more almost management consulting-like services. There's definitely much more overlap than I ever would have anticipated when I started Big Spaceship. I'm not sure that it's impossible to survive just providing mm. ad-like objects. Uh, there are certainly lots of big agencies and ones that were mentioned on Mad Men that are still around, but th there is a radical shift happening in the industry. You'll see groups like McKinsey and Deloitte and Accenture and consultancies like those, global management consultancies that have all purchased agencies and are sort of making their way into this because I think largely for the same, based on the same thesis that we have, which is that it's not about the channel of interaction, it's about the total interactions and the harmony, the consonants of those interactions uh, on behalf of the brand with a person. And by keeping those harmonious, you have an effective brand. And when they're dissonant, because you have lots of different groups doing lots of different things, you end up with a dissonant brand. Before starting Big Spaceship, you were working at another ad agency, and I was wondering what of that experience or other relevant factors at that time motivated you to go out and start your own? Well, that was a million years ago now. Um, 
I was very young. It was my first real job in the industry, and it was during the first internet bubble uh, of the late 90s. And the place that I worked took their eyes off of the most important part, which is the work product itself. Do great work and everything else can fall into place. And they were chasing the same kinds of dreams that everybody was chasing at that time, and who can blame them? But I wanted to focus on great work and having a great place to work. Uh, it was as simple as that. I had no plan. I had no training in running a business. I really fumbled my way through the first few years. But focusing on doing great work, if you can actually deliver on it, gets you pretty pretty far. Yeah, well, I was wondering that. I mean, it's a question that often arises when I talk to entrepreneurs who are successful with their first venture is, how are you going about making organizational decisions? Were you relying on your intuition? How was that working? I would say the, uh, the school of falling on your face and picking yourself back up and saying, well, that didn't work out very well and, uh, and pivoting. You know, now it's very different. We're pushing 18 years old, uh, and I've seen a lot. I won't say I've seen it all, but I also have many, many senior executives that I've surrounded myself with who are all smarter than me and are all expert in what they do. So decision-making is much more, uh, I would say that I, while I make lots of decisions, a lot they're much more oriented towards plotting uh, a direction mm. for the company or for a particular practice and all the decisions that cascade out of that are made by people who are tremendously talented so I don't I don't fall on my face quite as often as I used to you mentioned you started this business 18 years ago and when I talk to entrepreneurs on and off the podcast it seems to me and I may be wrong but my assessment is that the way in which society views entrepreneurship has changed so much, almost kind of like tattoos. Now no one bats an eyelid, but at the time it was a really risque thing. How did you think about becoming an entrepreneur? Were you nervous? Were you scared? Were you excited? Uh, all of those things. And I totally agree with you. I think entrepreneurship is certainly having a moment right now. I, I don't think it'll last forever uh, because things go in cycles, but it seems that everybody wants to start up and, and that's fun that's, that's a really interesting thing and a lot of uh, valuable and interesting businesses have been started uh, that might not otherwise if if the culture wasn't celebrating you know I was scared I was excited I was pretty clueless too so I didn't know what the downsides were you know it just sort of seemed like well I'll, this will just be on my terms right we'll do this how we want to do it and you don't really know all of the outside forces that will buffet you until they suddenly show up and you're like oh i cannot really make an impact on that you know there was all this talk with my original business partner of oh we'll take you know a month-long sabbatical every year and it's like you know in this business if you can do that your business isn't doing very well yeah so uh there was a lot of learning to be done. I, I don't think I had a very realistic picture, but that wasn't pure negative. It was like all things. It was a double-edged sword. I could, I could approach things without preconceived notions about how things should be done, and that's a tremendous advantage. But I also made tons of mistakes. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, you studied film, right? Yes. And you never went to business school. I did no. not. 
So do you think that was an advantage or a disadvantage? Again, both. I'm kind of a relativist that way. Everything has advantages and disadvantages. I definitely could see things with very fresh eyes. But since uh, my relationship started with Harvard Business School and uh, through the, the case studies that have been written on us, I've learned that almost every problem that anyone faces in business has been faced by somebody before and has been written about and discussed. And wow, that would have saved me a lot of pain along the way. So when you started this business, you picked Dumbo, where we are now. Now, that might seem like an obvious choice because it's such a cool area, great vibes, and I could see how it fostered creativity. At the time, it was a completely different place. So A, like, why did you make that choice? And B, is that type of idiosyncratic choice representative of the way you built Big Spaceship in general? Absolutely. Yeah, uh, we, I mean, honestly, Dumbo was a choice because the economy had just crashed and we were a startup and we were watching all of these companies that had spent way too much money on Aeron chairs, which were the, uh, the sort of metaphor for the excesses of that time. And we were building door desks and buying $100 desk chairs from Office Furniture Heaven. I hope they still exist because I just gave them a plug. You know, Dumbo really was almost like a neighborhood as incubator because it was incredibly inexpensive at that time. Those days are sadly gone. There weren't a lot of services here, but there was a community of artists and artisans. And then we showed up and really we were the only or one of the only digital businesses of any kind. Uh, that was at a time when it took six weeks to get a uh, high-speed line installed, and so you're on a you know, 56K modem. It definitely became part of our identity, and still is. You know, we just moved offices to this one that we're in now, uh, and when we were starting to think about a new space because we were bursting at the seams in the old one, it was never a consideration that we might leave Dumbo. It's just who we are and who we've been, and we've really grown up with the neighborhood. I think idiosyncratic choices as a uh, as a sort of framework for how I run businesses or how I run this business is probably fair. <laughs> I would say that I tend to want to choose the interesting path, and that's stood me in good stead for the most part. Um, interesting isn't always profitable or quick, but it certainly is more likely to teach you the most and get you some sort of additional value of some kind or another. When I see the rest of how the industry is structured, smaller shops tend to be owned by bigger corporations. You've remained an independent shop all this time. Why did you make that choice? Um, you know, it's not a single choice. No. It's an ongoing choice. Yes, yes. Um, you know, we've certainly been approached well, probably sure. yeah. weekly for the last 10 years, but I've never seen a really compelling case for why I should do otherwise, either from threats in the evolution of the industry uh, or how a partner might uh, enhance our business in a really measurable way. Uh, that could change. Uh, mm. my, my job is to is to protect the company and uh, and keep it 
moving forward uh, towards our overall goals, which are to do great work, work with great ambitious brands and have a really good time doing it in a really good place to work. You know, the industry, as we mentioned, is changing really radically and the groups that used to be your kind of your only options as parent companies or partners. Uh, it, the, the, the landscape of those potential partners has diversified radically. So there's a lot more opportunity out there and it's a big part of my job to keep assessing it. And at the time that we uh, we see something that makes us better for having done it, then we'll do it. Is there any particular reason why the type of companies acquiring what we'll call creative agencies has changed? Yeah, I think because the customer experience uh, or user experience has come to the forefront because of the radical shift of the economy towards digital and digital interactions. So we've seen over the past 15, 20 years, a real significant embracing of design and design thinking by the enterprise, the, the, the value, the business value of design. And stretching out from there, when you look at how money is spent by the enterprise, I mean, the, the internet runs on advertising dollars. And while a lot of these new buyers aren't necessarily getting into the paid advertising media game, they are certainly more aware of the flow of money and owning the entire customer experience and a larger share of the budget of an enterprise is pretty good business, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's a good decision to make. Okay, we're going to be able to take our expertise here. We can buy our way into additional sets of expertise and leverage our relationships to own a bigger piece of the pie. Yeah. So it's interesting that you describe the industry changing that way because when I did my research, uh, I was surprised by how much it changed. And uh, one thing that surprised me was how the language had changed. And a lot of the language being employed was that type of, you know, management talk that uh, they used to make fun in the, um, the Dilbert comics. Mm -hmm. And part of me thought, is that because it's an industry where pe to keep up with the needs of clients your identity has to be completely constantly changing so you want to leave that language open-ended i would say that it's that and also the language that we had to produce to start defining a whole new thing that was going on you know the word digital meant something five years ago it means very little now but we still have ascribed digital transformation, digital marketing, digital advertising. We're still using it as though it's meaningful because language evolves over time. It doesn't just stop when it loses its meaning. It will change. Uh, so I think those really broad terms probably emerge at um, inflection point times, times of tremendous change where we're all kind of searching for common definitions for things. For us, we've actually removed digital from, as a word, from describing ourselves mm. as an agency. We just say we're a modern partner now because it, it really didn't mean anything. And it actually kind of cut the wrong way. It said we only handle mm. this type of work, this set of connotations of that word, when we actually handle everything you would expect from a modern partner. So 
uh, I think all different groups are handling it differently. There are hundred-year-old agency networks that have a very different challenge that they're wrestling with than we have. We were born digital. We were born to be comfortable in the velocity and fragmentation and constant disruption of the world we're in now. Uh, we enjoy that. It's much, much harder when you built your structures and systems before that happened. Yeah. Talking about evolution of the business, for me, if we don't keep changing constantly, like a shark swimming, we'll die. Mm. If, I, if I look back at the beginning of a year, and I, you know, if I look back to January 1, 2017, and I don't feel that we've changed really radically in that time, something's amiss. Luckily, I feel like we're like so much, so much better at what we do and so much more nuanced in how we understand the work we're doing and how we put it forward. But to feel like you're not changing and not growing is death to a company mm -hmm. like us. And so you have to kind of embrace the potential of missteps and falling down and even just abject screw-ups because they're going to happen if you're going to build a business that stands the test of time. So you, you guest lecture sometimes at NYU about this Harvard business case that was written about you guys. Is there anything in particular that you share with the students when you go to NYU that you might share with some of our listeners? Well, the funny thing is that I, I almost set up my lectures like this, where uh, I, do a, I do as short as possible an update of what's happened since the case was written. And then I say, ask me questions. And I, I've been offered to get the questions in advance and I don't want them. I want to know what's interesting to uh, people uh, who are thinking about the business, who are looking at it at, in a window in time. There's a more recent, Harvard wrote a second case on us okay. uh, that came out the beginning of this year. So that's going to be a little bit different once I start lecturing with that one. But the, you know, the, selfishly, I learned so much about the business by hearing people's interesting angles into how they ask me questions. So I, I would rather just answer on the fly. Yeah. But, you know, the key... The key things that I'm obsessed with, generally speaking, in business is understanding that getting your culture, your values, your offering, your organizational design in alignment is tremendously powerful, though those are often things that are because they're kind of the soft stuff, uh, they can often feel like um, they can feel cosmetic or they can feel like afterthoughts mm. uh, to, you know, we have a core product and we need yeah. to ship, but it's the soft stuff that differentiates a business and understanding how much you actually can affect the culture of a business because you certainly can't tell a culture how to happen. Um, how do you benchmark the health of a culture and how you align what you're doing internally and how you're putting people together and how you're setting their incentives uh, towards growth and success and what success looks like and all those questions that is where i think the real magic happens mm -hmm. really really great businesses tend 
not uniformly true, but tend to consider those things very thoroughly. What do you want your culture to look like? What, what do you look for in your culture? The way that I describe it is I want to see the people that work here think of and use the company as their own canvas. That if they feel like they can build things on top of the company, whether it's a new ritual or a club or a committee or uh, some sort of charitable work that they want to do, if they choose to, to find a way of doing that through the community of the company and through the operations of the company in some cases, rather than doing it in their personal lives, then that means that there's, uh, there's some sort of magnetism. It's drawing them to express themselves through the lens of the company, that it's become part of their identity in a very significant way. I'm guessing having done this for so long, you've put a lot of thought into what you wanted your culture to look like. How did you decide on this being what was going to be important to your culture? And how should other entrepreneurs think about like what they should want their culture to look like? The culture is defined by obviously the people, but it's also sort of given form by the values. And one of the things I've learned uh, since starting to go to business school finally as a lecturer is that there's a long history of companies that have values but don't commit themselves to their values. That They post them on the wall, but they're not fully accountable to them. And thinking about what your values are, holding yourself accountable to them by making them explicit. Every single person in this company could tell you what our four core values are word for word. There would be no question. So by doing that, we're accountable to those values. And those values were constructed very carefully to organize the kind of behavior and output that I was looking for in this company. So it's the, the four core values and they, they're sort of two and two, they create an equilibrium or take care of each other. I want a very kind place to work. I don't think that, I think life is way too short to deal with assholes. Uh, I hope I'm allowed to swear on the podcast. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, so take care of each other, but it's also balanced out by speak up, no silent disagreement. So you have to be kind, but you have to be honest. And then we have collaborate inside and out, balanced by produce amazing work, right? So collaborate inside and out could lead to groupthink. It could lead to mediocre work coming out because we're just getting everybody's opinion and putting it into the meat grinder. So all of those things, when, there's, when they're working properly, create this beautiful tension. But it also nudges the type of behavior that I want to see uh, out of the people here and that I do see every day. And I think that that's what anchors the culture that I wanted to see. Now, did I define the culture by doing that? No, you can't define it. It's an organism. It's going to define itself. But if you believe in your values, if you hire with your values, if you expect and expect people to live up to them, and when things don't go well, you actually can communicate what didn't go well in terms of those values, then you're constantly reinforcing them, and that will at least nudge the culture toward the place you want it to be. So we talk so much about what has changed, and researching for this podcast, one thing I noticed that hasn't changed 
is an obsession the media or the media outlets that cover this industry have with one notion, which is that ad agencies are dead. It's like every year a slew of, of articles come out. I found one dating from 1994 in Wired saying ad agencies are dead. Why are people so obsessed with this yet unfulfilled prophecy? <laughs> um, you know, it's a really good question. I, I, I do feel like it's a bit of a self-loathing industry. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we sit a little bit outside the, of that. I, I don't really know. I think there is certainly a challenge in the fact that the on the paid media side of the business that's been a cash cow for big agency groups for a long time and that's going to diminish now i don't know what the reasoning was in 1994 but i imagine that you know the entire advertising model used to be based on scarcity right there are only so many full page ads in a magazine there are only so many 30 second blocks in your favorite tv show but the internet is all about abundance. Mm. You can just keep making more and more places yeah. to put ads. So that flipped the model on its head. Um, it hasn't destroyed advertising because people are always going to need a way to get people aware of something new or something that's great or their product, whatever it might be. The methods for doing it will change. And maybe it's saying the methods used by it ad agencies of a particular shape and color uh, are going to die because some of those methods really will. You know, I don't think people are talking a lot about radio and print advertising anymore. Uh, but the understanding of how to tell great stories, the understanding of how to reach people and how human culture and human behavior work and what the dynamics of those are, that's not going anywhere. So. You know, I think people just end up associating agency with output and the agency should be about how they get the work done. That's what we are. You know, we're every agency says they do approximately the same things. The differentiator is how. And I think groups that can't change how they've always done things are maybe on the wrong side of history. Uh, but if you can keep changing, then you're a OK. Mm -hmm. I don't think agencies are going anywhere. Maybe the name changes, but I kind of doubt it. Okay, well, thanks so much for talking to me today. This was really great. Thanks for having me. So thanks for staying through the whole episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to follow us on social media, just look up NYU Entrepreneurial Institute, Facebook, Twitter. We'll be posting new episodes going forward. Please feel free to follow us on SoundCloud or iTunes. Um, and feel free to reach out to me directly with any advice or questions. If you're an entrepreneur at NYU and would like to participate, my email is talkingstartups at wnyu.com. That's talkingstartups at wnyu.com. And I hope to have you here next week. Thank you so much.